Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad sits down with Steve Clayton, Chief Storyteller at Microsoft. Before joining Microsoft, Steve was the Director of Cloud Strategy at Microsoft International and Chief Technology Officer of Microsoft's UK Partner Group. In total, Steve has worked at Microsoft for over 20 years, from sales to technical roles, but always with a passion for technology and its potential impact on the world. He has been awarded Microsoft's Circle of Excellence Award three times, the highest accolade for sales and marketing employees. What's interesting about Steve is that his journey to becoming the chief storyteller at Microsoft all began with a blog called Geek in Disguise. At the time, he didn't know it, but his blog would later land him a call from Microsoft's head of communications and to Steve's surprise, result in a compliment and a promotion. As the chief storyteller, Steve leads a team of 30 people who tell stories in a variety of different ways inside and outside of Microsoft. All right, Steve, you're a storyteller. Feel free to break into some stories, whatever you want to share. But I was hoping to just start out with, you know, your origins and your background. So where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in, in and around Liverpool in, the, in England, born in Liverpool in the city center, then until about 10 years old, lived in a place called Runcorn, which was a new town, a so-called new town in the UK. And I lived there until I was 11. And then I moved to a place called Bevington, where I lived there until I was about, uh, I guess about 18, then went to university in a place in the middle of England called Loughborough, but in, in the US, it's pronounced Luga Baruga, I think. And then, um, Generous. Uh, yeah, and then, then got into, uh, then got into, into business and work and sort of moved around the UK a bit before moving to the US. When it comes to first loves or projects that really drew you in and pulled you in, would you say it was soccer? Would it be design? Would it be storytelling? Uh, what was the first passion that really got on your radar? I think my first passion is definitely soccer or football, as I call it. I grew up and still support Liverpool Football Club. My dad worked uh, part-time, so I, from a young age, I think I, my dad tells me I saw my first match when I was two years old, standing on the famous cop stand, which was a, a standing stand back then. Uh, and then my dad worked there. And so probably from the ages of about seven to 14, I would guess, I went to almost every home game of Liverpool for free with my dad. So that, that I think would definitely go down as my first passion. Do you think going to the games uh, with your dad, do you think that that had an impact on you? And if so, what was the role of your uh, parents in your, in your life early on? I think Liverpool definitely had an impact on me. And I, a few years ago, I really started to try and figure out like how did I fall into this profession of storytelling? But I, because it's not what I studied to do at all. I studied to be in a computing and I've now been able to combine both things, I guess. But I was always being drawn back to storytelling or writing. And I think a combination of a few things. One, Liverpool is a very storied football club. It has uh, some incredible stories even in the last year the story of winning the champions league and then 15 years ago liverpool played what i think is still one of if not the greatest games of european football that's ever been seen they came back from three zero down against milan to beat them on penalties and win uh, the champions league or the european cup so that this club has an amazing amount of stories but i would also say my parents and also my wider family in the liverpool area 
it's a city that is, it had a lot of great storytellers, be that musicians like the Beatles or be it comedians, folks like Sir Ken Robinson, who's, who has an incredible series of TED Talks that you may have seen. So it's just, I think it's partly because of just the, the nature of that place growing up. I always have these memories of, you know, you would all go around to your aunt and uncle's house or my grandparents' house and people would sit around and tell stories, not me, but I would constantly hear stories being told and then when I got older and you know was of an age to be able to go to the pub then that's where you know I I think I heard lots of stories is um I just grew up around storytellers I think do you feel like that type of oral tradition is something that is uh vanishing in the world or do you think that oral traditions and storytelling like that are stronger than ever I think the oral tradition I I'm not sure it's vanishing but I think there are obviously there are new things that come along in a new environment. And so visual storytelling is obviously a big deal these days, whether it's Instagram or Pinterest or whatever it may be. Uh, And I think partly that's just because of, you know, advances in technology. I think it's partly because of our intention is increasingly under attack. And in that world, visual storytelling uh, maybe can break through. And so I think, I don't think oral storytelling is going away at all. And there are obviously great places like Ted or the moth or those types of places, you know, you guys who are sort of the re-rise of podcast in some ways is, is a great example of oral storytelling. So I think these things sort of, you know, they go through cycles maybe, but I don't think oral storytelling is going away, but I think it's being supplemented by different storytelling vehicles. It sounds like you grew up in a really unique scene. I think that the best stories come from a scene where you have a critical mass of people who have really interesting things to talk about, where there's some folklore, where there are some individuals that have reached prominence on a national stage. It's a whole combination of all these complex factors. So let's try to describe that scene a little bit more for people, because there it sounds like there were some incredible kind of like leadership examples or maybe first movers who taught you and everyone else in the town the art of storytelling, maybe. Were there any particular inspirations there? Was it the Beatles? Was it studying stories from the football club? Any examples come to mind? I think it's more people that I remember certain characters, you know, um, some of my dad's friend who were just, they were just very funny characters and they would be able to, I think I always admired that they were able to draw a crowd and you're like, why are people, why is everybody in a busy room suddenly quiet to listen to this person? And it's because they had, either a great story or a funny way of telling the story or a funny story or often, you know, the the combination of those things. And I think, you know, Liverpool as a, it's a city that's gone through great economic success in sort of the 1900s and early 20th century and was arguably the biggest shipping port in Europe and was the gateway to the US. And so it also became this place where you would get lots of, it would be an influx of lots of different ideas. And so, you know, when you go and listen to the Beatles and where they had the music from, you know, they, they got their ideas from rock and roll that had been shipped in literally on a ship that had sailed from the US and docked into the port in Liverpool. And people had brought music back in recorded form or live music. And that became the inspiration. So Liverpool was somewhat this sort of melting pot of 
lots of different influxes of different ideas. And then you also had in this, I would guess, in the 60s and 70s, a lot of social deprivation in the city because of the, the very quick decline of the shipping industry, a lot of political and economic and social turmoil. And all of that sort of brings about different reactions. And one of the reactions, I think, is some people just, they deal with that with humor. And so I remember as well being you know, surrounded by whether it was family or, you know, local comedians. Like, there was a guy called Ken Dodd. There was another guy called Stan Boardman and all these sort of interesting characters that were folks in the city that everybody knew of. And you were, you were just surrounded by characters. And, you know, whether meeting them at uh, friends and family's houses or, you know, we would go out for a Sunday drive in my, in my parents' car. And that, that was basically a day out for us. It's like, let's hop in the car and drive to North Wales, which was only about 20 or 30 miles away and go sort of explore the countryside and the characters and the pubs of North Wales. So it was, it was a fun upbringing that I think had lots of, lots of influences that at the time I didn't recognize, but I think probably subconsciously influenced me uh, to be a storyteller. When you got to university, if I read correctly, you studied programming. I know you were passionate about writing. Why did you choose programming and uh, how did you make your way back to writing? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't quite as narrow as programming, actually. It was a fascinating course that in hindsight, I think I got, I try not to use the word lucky and maybe we can come back to that because uh, I have a story about that. But I think I was fortunate in, I had applied to a course that it was the first year this course had been taught and it was called Information and Computing. And it was told partly by the library department, which gives you some sense of there's a storytelling piece to that, that it was, you know, there's a, a group at that university or a division in the university, a department that was called the library department. And it literally, this is pre-World uh, Wide Web, pre-internet, pre-search engines. And that half of the course would teach you everything about information and indexing and bibliographies and abstracts. And so all the, the mechanics, if you like, of how to put together content and organize content and find content, which became an, a great foundation for you know, the career I ended up in. And then the other half of the course was taught by the computing department, which was programming, networking, software development approaches. And then there were also two other aspects of the course that you had to take. One was a foreign language. And the other, which was absolutely fascinating, was a course that you have to do on the psychology of human-computer interaction, which was taught by the ergonomics department. And that essentially was a foundation in how do you design interfaces and sort of spoke to my interest in design. And so it ended up being this very, um, very different course and then you study for two years. Then you did what in the UK is called a sandwich placement. You know, we call them an internship, I think, here in the US. So I went and worked for a company for a year. And again, I was fortunate that during that year, it was the year that the first web browser came out. So I remember the first time I saw NCSA Mosaic, you know, by Mark Andreessen and co back then from the University of Illinois. And I was like, wow, this thing is unbelievable. I'd been playing around with the internet with Gopher and FTP and Waze and all of these older technologies. And I saw the web browser and I was like, oh my God, this is going to change everything. And so I came back to university, did my final year and wrote my final year project or dissertation on the use of the internet in education. And this is you know, well over 20 years ago now. And so it was this series of just happy, fortunate things that, that led me down a path that ultimately I left university on a Friday and the following Monday started working for 
a pharmaceuticals company uh, in the IT department, a company called Zeneca. And they employed me as a programmer, which they realized after about three weeks was just a terrible idea because I'm an utterly awful programmer. But I'd started to find my way into a different profession, which was around how do you use the, the web or internet technologies inside a company, what we now obviously call an intranet. But back then it was, it was something that nobody was doing. So I sort of took this weaving path and even that still didn't get me anywhere close to, you know, the job I currently have. When you were on that weaving path, did it feel very uncertain? Did it feel right? Did you just have moments where you oscillated between the two feelings? Um, what was that like? Uh, I think I didn't really have any sense of where I was going to end up. Uh, and I still don't now. But I had this sense of there are things that I get drawn towards and maybe a sense of, I think I have a, a, a way of looking for niches or niches and saying there's something over there that is an unfulfilled opportunity that I think I can excel in. And I sort of put myself into those positions. And so what that has taught me as I've looked back over my career is about every three years, I sort of have to look around for what's the new thing that I can go and throw myself into where, and I'm very much a I've figured out I'm very much a startup guy than a finisher. So it's like I can go and get people energized around creating something new, but I'm not the guy who's ultimately going to take it over the finish line, which I think has become an important thing for me to understand as I build teams as well. So getting to the frontier, that's hard enough, but then building the town or building the fort at the frontier is the huge challenge, right? So sometimes having the ideas and getting things started is the right approach, but you alluded to this that building the team is often the, the real challenge and catalyzing the team around your ideas and the story and your vision and everything. These are questions at the top of probably every technology executive's mind right now. So how do you think about creating your team for storytelling now? And maybe how did you think about it when you were just getting started? Well, I think I only really started building storytelling teams, I would say about five or six years ago. Previously, I'd run technical teams when I worked for Microsoft in the UK and I think I learned some hard, some hard lessons from the building technical teams. Uh, and I've learned, continued to learn those lessons as I've built this set of storytelling teams out over the last few years. But I think the early lessons I learned is, and they sound incredibly obvious now, people have heard them as you know, don't hire in your own image. I think as a new manager, a new leader, you have a natural tendency to say, well, that person is like me. And so you want people like you around you. And they're like you can be any dimension. It can be your age. It can be your background, your upbringing, your uh, skill sets. And actually, you obviously you want to do the complete opposite in most cases is that you want to build as diverse a set of people as you can to bring in different experiences and ideas. And so there's diversity on that dimension. But the other thing I began to realize is I remember an exercise I did probably 13 or 14 years ago when I was working in the UK. And somebody had asked me, a coach of mine or a mentor actually, I was asking him for advice and he said, hey, one of the things that you should do is think about your brand. And he said, you know, write down what you think the three, uh, your three brand attributes should be that you would like them to be. And so I remember, uh, and then he said, and then go and figure out a way to test with a group of people what they would say that your brand, brand attributes are today. And then you do the sort of gap analysis of here are the things I want people to say about me and here are the things that they are saying about me in terms of brand. And you can do that relatively easily, anonymously, or, or just directly with people. And I remember saying one of the things I want to be known for is having attention to detail. Because I thought that was just a really important thing at the time to be like, oh, here's a guy who has real attention to detail and just finishes project and you know gets everything done perfectly. 
And I realized through this exercise that actually I was not very good at attention to detail, but I'm good at ideas, but I'm not as good at the full execution and finishing of those. And so I started to realize that I needed people around me who were really good at being able to fill the gaps in my skill set and also people around me who I could learn from their skill set. So I think that's the biggest thing I've learned. And then at building teams over the last few years, in particular around storytelling, I think one of the other things that's important in storytelling is to not lose the, you know, the foundational notion of great writing, that you can have lots of things in storytelling. You can have producers, you can have content experts, you can have video experts, social experts. But if you're really about storytelling, you need great, great writers. And also both to create great content, but also to, to sort of uphold the notion of that's what great storytelling is built on. It definitely is. And I think writing is so difficult because oftentimes, you know, you'll be in the seventh or eighth revision on a fiction or nonfiction project, and it's still not all the way there. And sometimes it takes that 10th, 11th, 12th revision to get there. That's a process I think that many writers might acknowledge, but very few actually go through all of those revisions. Writing takes a long time to do well, to create something that lasts. What, in your view, makes for a good writer? Are there any character traits? Are there any skills that good writers have outside of just doing the work? I think there are many, but I think the one I'll pick on because I'm asked this question you know, relatively often is what do you look for when you're hiring for people on the team? And I think this holds true for all different types of jobs on the team, but in particular for the storytellers and writers. And I think it's curiosity. And so I say, I want people that are curious and you know, I sort of make a joke and say, I don't, by that, I don't mean I want people who are odd. I want people who have this natural curiosity about the world. It's the people who will walk down, you know, a high street or walk through a very well-known environment and they'll notice the one thing that's out of place or that's different. But not only will they notice, they'll go and explore and try to understand why. And so I think this, just this sense of curiosity is the most important skill. Are there any foundational reading materials, texts, or experiences that you like writers on your team to have? The one thing that I say to everybody on the team, whether they're writers or not, uh, there is one book that I anybody who asks me about storytelling, uh, Nancy Duarte's book Resonate, I think is a phenomenal book. And what I love about that book, and you know, having worked with Nancy as well over the last couple of years, is that I re- that book, when I first picked it up, I picked it up simply because I'd seen Nancy's earlier book, Slideology. And I was fascinated with how do you tell a story through visuals and through slides. And I sort of just bought her second book because I thought, well, if it's as good as the first, it's going to be really good. And Resonate doesn't really set itself up to be a storytelling book, but that's really what I think it is. And I said this to Nancy herself, is when you, you read it, you're like, wow, it just breaks down, you know, it breaks down Star Wars into this just beautiful execution of here is why this thing is an amazing story. It's not by some accident, you know, it goes through this, you know, classic story structure, but it also breaks down things like, you know, Reagan speeches and talks about why they have their great stories because they have this sort of cadence to them and this rhythm to them. And so that is the thing that I, when people say to me, you know, is there any, are there any tools or advice you can give? That's sort of the warm thing I give. We've written our own small guide to storytelling here at Microsoft, which I also share with people. But yeah, so those would be two things that I would offer to people. And then the other, maybe another way to answer that question is just, I remember talking with a a friend of mine at Microsoft again, probably like 15, 16 years ago, back when we were both in a technical team in the UK. 
And I'd started to be involved in interview loops for people that we were trying to hire onto the team. And I didn't have much experience with interviewing. And so I said to this friend of mine, I said, hey, what are the great interview questions you have? And he says, oh, there's always one question I ask. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, I ask people what magazine they read. Uh, you know, this is back when people read more magazines maybe. And, you know, so let's say the answer you gave was, oh, I read, um, we, we're both car fanatics. So let's say the person's answer was, oh, I read Top Gear magazine. His follow-up question would be, how many back issues of that magazine do you have at your house or in your loft or in storage? And if the person said none, then it was a sort of, it was a signal to him of like, huh, here's a person who's maybe not as invested or as deep in the topic as they might be. And he and I are both cut from the same background is that, you know, I have literally have every back issue from the last 23 years of wide, 25 years of wide magazine. And, um, you know, much to the annoyance of my family and it's, why do you have them? It's like, well, it's just, I'm, I'm committed to this thing. I think it's a, it's one of the best outlets for technical storytelling. So anyway, so that's a, sort of an example of a question that I sometimes ask is to really get a sense of somebody's depth of interest in a topic. But then I've learned over the, over the last few years of there, there's another version of that question, which is the breadth that people read from. And so I often talk about at home next to my armchair I have on my house, I have a pile of magazines that's probably about three foot tall. And it's a very diverse set of magazine. And I still read a lot from magazines. I just enjoy sitting back and reading. And so, you know, it's the New York Times, it's the New York Times Magazine, it's Wired, it's Vogue, it's Condé Nast Traveler, it's Monocle, and the list goes on and on and on. And it's just this giant pile of diversity. So I think there's this mix of how much depth of investment do you have in a topic, but then how broadly do you read across a range of different types of publication styles of writing, audiences, etc. I love that. You mentioned earlier about luck. Is there a way we can segue into telling your, uh, your lucky story and kind of expanding on that uh, complicated, complicated word? Yeah, a friend, uh, a guy who used to work on the team I, I led in the UK 12 or 13 years ago, he also moved here to Seattle with Microsoft a few years back and his name is John and I caught up with John for a beer and as I always say, you know, the best stories start and end in a pub. And so I was having a chat with John and he was remarking upon my career and saying, wow, Steve, you know, you've been really successful here at Microsoft and I'm really, you know, proud to see how well you've done, which is very kind of him. And I said, yeah, you know, John, I've just been really lucky. And he's like, no, you didn't get lucky at all. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't think there's any such thing as luck in, in your world or what, what I've seen you do. He said, I, luck is where hard work meets opportunity. And I really loved that quote. And I ended up using it uh, later that year. I gave a TEDx talk back in Liverpool and sort of talked about my career, my journey, and the lessons I'd learned along the way. But I love that idea because I struggle with the word luck. Like when, when other people say it to me, is that sometimes I do think it, it's just a very easy way to either dismiss or not to acknowledge where people have put in a huge amount of hard work and where they have put themselves in the way of opportunity that, you know, the opportunity occurs because of the amount of work that they've put in. So I thought that was a nice way of expressing what I had called luck and he called where, where hard work meets opportunity. Yeah. And I think luck too can kind of cloud us from empathizing with people and connecting with the human aspects of another's journey because it's the easiest thing in the world to attribute 
things that are too complex for us to understand to just luck, right? It takes a lot of work to dive into, well, what actually went into creating that story? You know, did it, was it written in a year or was it written over that individual's whole life? Like it's a very complicated topic. You've done a lot of things to prepare for the role that you're currently in. And they're, you know, across the spectrum from working in sales to working in marketing. I even heard that you were kind of accidentally poached initially when you joined Microsoft. Yeah, I was a complete accidental hire. That's a great, uh, well, maybe it's yeah. other people can decide, but that's a story that I can tell. So. Well, let, let's, yeah, let's talk about that because I think oftentimes the most fortuitous or uh, the most synchronistic moments of our journey sometimes start out as uh, a funny story or a poaching incident. <laughs> yeah, so this one, I, so I was back in, um, back in the UK and I was working for this company, Zeneca, it's now called AstraZeneca in the IT department. And we, we worked a lot with Microsoft. We were so-called early adopters of lots of Microsoft's technology. And so what that meant was every month, a group of us would travel from Zeneca's headquarters in the Northwest of England to Microsoft's headquarters in the UK, which is in uh, Reading in the South of England. And we'd spend about two days with the Microsoft team talking about technology getting to know them, understanding the products, strategy, et cetera. And so over the course of, you know, two or three years, I guess I got to know a decent number of people at Microsoft. And one day I was sat at the office at my desk in Zeneca. I shared an office with a bunch of other people and the phone rang and I picked up the phone. Obviously I said, hi, it's Steve. And the voice on the other end said, uh, hi, Steve, it's Paul from Microsoft. And I said, hey, Paul, you know, what can I do for you? And he said, well, maybe it's what I can do for you. He said, I was wondering if you'd be interested in a job at Microsoft. He said, I'm not really supposed to poach people or trying to hire people from our customers, but I really think there's a job here that you'd be great at. And I said, well, I would, I would be, I'd love to join Microsoft. I'm flattered. And so he put me in touch with the HR department and I went with Microsoft and I went through this whole recruitment process. And much to my surprise, a couple of months later, I got offered a job at Microsoft, which I accepted. And I sort of announced to my manager at Zeneca that I was going to be leaving and taking this job. And I had this one month period of work left to do at Zeneca. So I was still working at Zeneca, but everybody at Zeneca knew that I was going to be leaving to work for Microsoft. And all of the friends I knew at Microsoft knew that I was going to be leaving to join them. And so in this last one month period, we had one of these regular visits to the Microsoft head office and we have a day of briefings. And then, you know, as often happens, we go to the pub that evening, this great little pub called the Bull in Sonning just on the River Thames, great little country pub. And I was stood in the pub having a pint with a friend of mine from Zeneca. And the door opened and Paul, who made the original phone call, walked into the pub. And Paul, important to the story, Paul had not been involved in the interview process at all. So I had not seen or heard from him since the original phone call a few months earlier. And he walked into the pub and saw my colleague and I and walked straight up to us. And my other, uh, the colleague who I was with, his name is Steve. And he stretched out his hand to shake, shake hands. And he offered his hand to the other Steve and said, congratulations on the job. And the other Steve looked at Paul and looked at me and said, I think you mean him and pointed at me. And in that split second, Paul realized that when he'd made the original phone call, he'd phoned the wrong Steve. Uh, but <laughs> even worse, they'd hired the wrong Steve. And so, um, Paul regathered his composure pretty quickly and he's like, Oh, congratulations on the job to me. And Paul became a great friend of mine. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, I didn't really tell the story for a long time. And, and by a long time, I mean about 18 years 
And so about three years ago, I was invited by our head of HR at Microsoft to come and speak at the global HR conference. So 1,500 or so people gathered in a giant ballroom at one of the local hotels here in Seattle. And I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to unload the wrong Steve story. And so I sort of told this story publicly for the first time, much to the surprise of the, uh, the gathered HR executives in the room. But as I pointed out to them, you know, I'm still here after 18 years, so maybe they hired the right Steve after all. <laughs> so sharing those stories, sometimes we can hold them back, right? Because it's, uh, you, we worry about telling them when's the right time. It's hard to decide. Any advice on being more vulnerable and sharing some stories that feel uncomfortable? Like, how do you know when the time is right? I think with that one, it's, I told it to other people. I just never really told it to a big audience. And so I realized the time was right with that one because I, frankly, I knew I'd get a laugh out of the crowd. You tested the material, right? Yeah. It was a shameless yeah. opportunity to just, uh, to make people laugh. And I now, I now use that story relatively frequently, particularly if I'm presenting to a new audience I've never met. One of the things I've learned in storytelling and one of the things I enjoy most or have got to enjoy most of Microsoft, I used to hate it when I first started, was presenting and doing public presenting. And I know lots of people have a real you know, fear of public presenting. And, what, and I, I learned from experience within the first month of working for the company, I did a truly awful presentation that I thought was going to get me fired at the company. And in fact, I have these moments throughout the company that have been turning points where I fear I'm about to get fired or I fear I've done something that's going to get me fired. And when it doesn't, I always use it as a learning opportunity. And so I did this terrible presentation, at least I thought it was. And I told myself that I would never do something, never do such a poor presentation again. And so I set off on this journey to figure out how to become a better presenter. And so I studied uh, lots of great presenters through watching Ted or other presenters I knew at Microsoft who I thought were great presenters. And one of the things I learned or I observed and you see this in particular with, you know, I talked about Ken Robinson earlier. You see his talk, which I think is still the most watched talk on TED. And he, he makes great use of humor very early on in the talk. And he does it, I think he does it, I'm sure he knows he does it, to get the audience on his side. And that's one of the things that as you sort of figure out how to become a better presenter is the sooner you can get the audience on your side, the sooner that they are willing you to be successful. And that's all you really want to be when you're on stage is you just want to walk off going, well, that was a success. People enjoyed it. I made them laugh. I entertained them. And so I guess that's the lesson I've learned from it in the, in the arena of storytelling is having engaging or fun stories like that, or, you know, maybe vulnerable stories is, is one way to, to get your audience on your side. Is the best place to study that comedy or is the best place to study that business presentations? What, what's your take there? Um, I think a little bit of both. I think Steve Jobs is obviously renowned as a brilliant business presenter and, you know, he would occasionally use comedy, but he was, you know, obviously a very accomplished and I don't think that came by accident. You know, I think he, he became good at that craft, but equally you go and watch great Ted presentations and a lot of them do have humor in. And so I think it's, I think it's a mix. You know, lots of people say, we'll go do improv classes, which I think are definitely useful but more for helping you sort of think on your feet than necessarily being a great presenter. So one of the other things I think that gets left out of the conversation about storytelling these days is the amount of direct experience and uh, personal experience that's required for great writing. So one of the things that I've noticed about great writers is 
they typically all go through an ordeal, right? They go through something in their own life that is very challenging, whether it's, you know, a war, a relationship breaking up, losing a loved one. There's typically some type of catalyst and it's often dark that spurs them to write and turn their pain into art. Do you think that that type of adversity is a requisite for creating writing that lasts or is there a way that we're going to be able to create artificial adversity maybe that accomplishes what previous adversities uh, used to accomplish for writers? I think it definitely helps. And I think where you have personal experience, it helps because you, if you think about the great writing that you read, it puts the reader in the environment. And so it paints this picture that tells people what, you know, and it gives you more of a sensory experience of what were the smells, what were the sounds, what were the flavors, what was the colors. And so any, I think, great storytelling and, you know, examples of one of the examples that I think inspired some of our storytelling here at Microsoft, the New York Times snowfall story, I think is still one of the best examples of the way that that story, both in the words that John Branch wrote and in the visuals that accompanied it, the way it put you at the top of this mountain and painted the scene ahead of what was about to happen, which was this terrible accident that took people's lives up here at Stevens Pass because of an avalanche you felt like you were at the top of the mountain with them. And I think it's incredibly hard. I I don't know actually whether John Branch went to the top of that mountain and experienced it. I'm assuming he did because I don't know any other way that you would be able to describe the scene with the level of depth that he had been able to, maybe by talking to lots of other people involved. But I do think obviously you can artificially create it. And there are great examples of that. You know, JK Rowling, I'm reading fifth, I think, installment of Harry Potter right now to my kids. And you read the scenes in that and you feel like you're in Hogwarts Castle and you know exactly where you are. And that thing doesn't exist. So obviously it's been made up. But I do think that there is something to be said for having personal experience that you can draw upon to be able to to tell those stories. So hopefully this isn't too cliche, but uh, we've already alluded to a number of stories that use the hero's journey as a framework. I'd be curious to know in your research of story formats and frameworks like the hero's journey, what stands out to you about those frameworks? I think the thing that persists across all of the frameworks is certainly the ones that I'm, and I'm no, I'm certainly no expert of them. So I'm familiar with the hero's journey, but in some ways I'm not really a student of storytelling frameworks as much as I'm just, you know, in the midst of storytelling. Having said all of that, I will say, you know, I I end up giving lots of presentations inside and outside of the company, in particular over the last two years around storytelling. And people say, you know, what makes a great story? It's the thing that makes a great story is it has to have people in, you know, and it has to be some people or group of people that have gone on some kind of journey. And so I do think the hero's journey, as cliched as it is, there is an awful lot of truth to that, uh, regardless of the type of, you know, story arc or framework or chapters that you decide to use. But ultimately, you know, the great stories, I think, are ones where people have gone on some journey, encountered some adversity, been transformed. And, you know, often, you know, it sort of doesn't matter in a way what the outcome is, whether it's good or bad. But I do, I do sort of have a, a resistance to being approached. And I am quite often, you know, let's go and tell a story about, product X. And I'm like, great, who was the person who built it? What was the journey they went on? And then the answer I get is, no, 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 we want to tell a story about product X. I'm like, I'm not quite sure that that's a story because I don't see a person in this thing. And so I think the, the heart of all of great stories or the heart of stories is people. So if we start with people, in your experience, 
what's the best way to build trust, to build friendships? Because with storytellers and with creatives, uh, these can be moody folks, right? These can be folks that have some ups and downs. What have you found to be a good path or a good plan to kind of build camaraderie and build the trust you need in order to have a safe writer's room or, you know, safe back and forth where no one feels threatened, basically? Yeah, I, I like that question. I think it, I'll answer it a slightly different way because I think it holds true for something else is early in my career, I used to think a lot about how do you get on in your career and people talk, you know, they talk about networking and early in my career, I either by accident or somehow figured out that networking is actually the reverse to most of the way people do it. I think most people approach networking as I want to connect with somebody who's more senior than me in a position of power that I can get something from or they, they can give something to me. They can elevate my position. They can grant me some access to something. And I learned relatively quickly. I was working with the guy who, was the, uh, who led Microsoft UK early in my career. And I realized somehow that the opportunity really for me was what could I offer to him, this individual. And so I started to fall into this pattern of every few weeks, I was just, I would send him something in emails like, oh, I read this great story and I thought you'd be interested in it. And he never asked me for these things and could have easily just ignored them. But he didn't. I, he recognized that here is somebody who's trying to offer me something that because of his position, he didn't see because, you know, whether he was too busy or was reading different things or had different interests. And I was trying to help him. And so immediately it changed the relationship and it brought it to a level where he then felt more invested in my success. But also, I think the thing that we learned through that was finding this common ground that it turns out I then built a relationship with this person that was all around football. We both had a mutual love for football. And so this combination of figuring out it's not always about what I can get from somebody. It's also what I can give to them. And then figuring out what is the, the mutual common ground there may be something completely different to the topic that we're engaged on. And for me, that's often sport or design or art, or I bring these other passions I have and we'll try to find common ground with somebody that isn't on the, the topic that we're actually there to talk about because it allows you to build up this rapport. Wise words. So are there any projects right now that you can share with us that maybe aren't widely known or is there anything internal you're working on or external? that is really exciting right now at Microsoft? The thing I'm working on right now is we have a, a big keynote next week. So the, the team that I uh, get the great opportunity to lead is about 35 people strong and they're all storytellers, but they, they run the, the gamut from people who are, you know, fantastic award-winning journalists, you know, people who've got Peabody awards who are just phenomenal writers to people who are, you know, young in career, incredibly strong on social people who are amazingly strong on, you know, visual storytelling, photography, videography, and then probably the, the opposite end in some ways of the spectrum to my, you know, these great writers we have on the team is we have people on the team who build technical demonstrations. So when we do these big product demonstrations on stage with our CEO, I have a team who builds those demos or uh, work with the team that builds those demos, I should say. And we're working on a whole set of demonstrations next week, one of which I think it will be the first time it's seen broadly publicly. So I'm not going to give it away, but it uses some 
uh, sort of breaking leading edge holographic technology combined with some AI technology to bring about what many people I think would look at and go, oh, that's the teleport from Star Trek, like literally, or the holoport, I should say, from Star Trek. And so we have a demo that we're building that some people look at that and they go, well, that's not storytelling, but I believe it is, that it's another way to be able to deliver a story. And so we have that demo. We have another demo that we're working on. Uh, we have a new product coming out pretty soon that people may have heard about, a product called Minecraft or a version of Minecraft called Minecraft Earth, which is just phenomenal. So I've had the chance to play with that sort of privately over the last couple of weekends, and it's amazing. So we're working on how do we bring stories to life through live demonstrations on stage. And we really do put, we put as much craft into the story of execution of those things on stage as we do into the technical execution. That's really exciting because so often when we're encountering stories in just written or audio form, there's a whole layer of context that's missing, right? Because the words, the, uh, you know, I can make these small mouth noises, but they don't quite convey what I mean. But whereas with a visual medium or, you know, augmented reality and sound design and everything, you can kind of show people what you mean and show people uh, a new world. So this is, this is really exciting stuff. Steve, thanks so much for being generous with your time. This is fascinating. Uh, we'll have to have you back for round two if you're, uh, you're up for it sometime. When is the keynote and uh, how can people find out more about it? The keynote is next Wednesday at, uh, I think it's 8.30 Pacific time. And uh, we will be streaming it live from our website, uh, news.microsoft.com. The event is called Microsoft Inspire. So yeah, 8.30 for an hour long, you'll get to hear from our CEO and you'll get to see five or six, I think, pretty amazing technical demos and stories that go with them. Very cool. And if anybody's listening who is a storyteller, who is a writer, uh, and they're really interested in your work, are there any open roles right now that you're hiring for or that your team is? We just filled the last open role on my team, but we, you know, we regularly sort of change what's available. People move in and out in a good way. And so... There are always opportunities. Sure. Steve, this has been awesome. Uh, final thought, final uh, challenge for you. If you were to leave one tip or piece of advice for everyone out there that's aspiring to tell better stories, what would that be? I think it would be, I did this myself recently, is, um, is figuring out what is your own story. I, I did a leadership training exercise. And one of the things that we were challenged to do was to come up with our own individual purpose which seemed quite daunting to do in the amount of time they gave us. But the way that we were encouraged to do that was to sort of draw out, we took a giant piece of paper, everybody, and this is about 50 people in a room, everybody took a piece of paper and a marker and spent probably 20 or 30 minutes basically drawing out their life story. And I found it fascinating and educational for me because you talked earlier on about these ups and downs that you you know, you have in life and these, you know, these dark moments that you learn from and what did you learn from them? And it was a really powerful way of me cathartically telling myself my own story, but then ultimately being able to out of that say, well, what is, what is my purpose in life now? Like, why do I exist? That's a great place to end it. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. 
If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.